Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how to be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy today's message, and we are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Good morning. My name is Kevin Lance. I'm the youth pastor here at GCC, and it's good to be with you this morning. Grateful to uh, have another opportunity to worship together. 21 years ago on this day, our nation experienced a great tragedy um, and a terror attack. And uh, this morning, we, we're going to pray for those who are still reeling from the effects of that day. And, uh, but there are those in our nation and in our community that when things, uh, things like that occur, when everyone else is running away from danger and running in, in fear, uh, there are those who... It is their calling and their job to run towards danger and to run towards, um, to run towards the, the chaos and the strife and to make sense of it. And um, we want to take a moment this morning to recognize uh, those men and women who, um, who have that calling from the Lord and who uh, use their gifts to help others in the midst of crisis. And so we're going to ask that if you are an active or retired paid or volunteer, law enforcement officer, firefighter, or EMS worker, if you would please stand this morning, and we want to recognize you. We want to uh, recognize uh, the gift that God has given you and the calling that he has placed on your life, but also to just thank the Lord for you and for what you do. So let's give a round of applause. Thank you for what you do. We are grateful for you and for what God does through you to help others. And so with that, uh, would you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you so much for this day, for another opportunity to worship you, to enter into a time uh, where we are focused on you and on your word. And Lord, we just pray in this moment today, God, we know that there are those that are still hurting uh, from events that transpired 21 years ago. And, and Lord, we, we just pray for comfort and for peace for those who are still affected by the terror attacks on 9-11. And we, uh, we pray for those families who are in mourning and uh, those who have lost loved ones. And Lord, we just pray that you would enter into their suffering as we know that you do. Continue to bind up their wounds. If they, if they know you, God, and trust in you, Lord, that you would just allow them to know that you are close by this morning and that you are there with them in their grief. For those that don't know you, Lord, we pray that you would use their experience and their, um, and their grief to draw them close to you, that they would come to know you in a new way. Lord, we, just, we pray also uh, around the world, we know that, that terror attacks happen uh, every day, that there is wars and rumors of wars and strife and anger and malice in the world around us. And Lord, um, we just look forward to the day that you will bring all of those things to an end the day when you bring our world to redemption, to completion. God, uh, we pray for that day to come swiftly. We pray for you to end the terror in the world around us. And Lord, we're just so grateful for all those who, in moments of terror and moments of chaos, do run towards danger in order to help, 
God, we know that it is a deep calling that you have placed in their lives and a gift that you have given them to be able to do that in the midst of crisis. And so, Father, we just thank you for them. We thank you especially for our local, uh, for our local first responders here uh, in Willow Street. And uh, we think, think especially specifically of the Willow Street Fire Company and the West Lampeter Police Department who have been such a great help and uh, have a great relationship with, with this church and have been supportive of us. Uh, we just thank you for them. Lord, we thank you also for the many first responders in, our, in Lancaster County, in the state of Pennsylvania, and across the country who, again, just give so much of themselves uh, time and energy and, um, to, to what they do and what you have called them to do. And we just thank you for them. Lord, we pray this morning as we turn towards your word, Lord, that you would help us to draw close to you as you are already drawing close to us. And Lord, we, uh, we pray that your word would uh, impact our hearts and our minds, that we would be challenged in our faith this morning to become more like your son, Jesus, to grow closer to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I was getting a little nervous over there, Kevin, because I couldn't find my sermon. And then I realized you had it over here, so. Yeah, everyone knows it was you, all right? <laughs> Taking people's stuff, I'll tell you what. The other day, my wife was driving in the car, and uh, I won't tell you which daughter said this, but one shouted from the back seat, said, Mommy, uh, when you were pregnant with me in the hospital, were you holding a glass and it broke? I'll just let that settle in. <laughs> Mommy, when you were pregnant with me in the hospital, were you holding a glass with me and it broke? It's strange when you talk with children, you hear the things that children say, and we say things like, mommy's water broke. That's what, it, that's what comes to a child's mind. <laughs> it's amazing how strange this world can be, can't it? Depending on what age you are at, what season of life you're in. You know, the books of the Bible are sometimes strange. One of the strangest books of the Bible is what we're going to undertake here now for the next few weeks. It's called Ecclesiastes. Ray Steadman, in his book entitled, Is This All There Is to Life, writes, Ecclesiastes, the mystery book of the Old Testament. Does it teach us to eat, drink, and be merry, for life will soon be over? Some think it does. Does it deny life after death? Some have read it that way. Why is it the most often quoted book by atheists and religious skeptics? Certain statements in the book seem to appeal strongly to such scoffers, what shall we make of such a strange book? Friends, that is the question we're gonna unpack the next several weeks as we open up this letter, this speech, this book that we call Ecclesiastes. Now, from the onset, I wanna let you know that this sermon was not shaped merely by my own mind. It was shaped by the minds of many others, including Haddon Robinson, Ray Steadman, Derek Kidner, uh, Skip Heitzig, the Moody Bible Commentary, and the Navigator's Commentary. I say that to you because one, I wanna be uh, up front and honest with you that I've been influenced by their writings, but I would like you to be influenced by their writings as well as we explore this sometimes strange and difficult book known as Ecclesiastes. And for today and for the next six weeks, that's what we're gonna be studying. We're calling this series Life in a Mad, Mad World because sometimes that's what life can feel like. We're living in a mad, mad world. Now we're not gonna study this book chapter by chapter. But really what we're going to do is we're gonna to try to tackle some of the major themes 
to make this book more accessible to you. And it is our hope and our desire that this series would serve as a catalyst for deeper study into God's word. And so would you help me this morning and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter one. We're gonna read the first 11 verses of chapter one found in Ecclesiastes. Now, if you're not sure where Ecclesiastes is, it's right after Proverbs in most of your Bibles, unless you have a Hebrew Bible or some other Bible that I'm not familiar with. But for most of our English Bibles, it's found right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verses one through 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it, ri where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had something you couldn't open? In the attic of my grandfather's house was a box over in the corner, and I couldn't open it. And instead of asking Pop for the key, I will admit this morning led a life of breaking and entering. I searched every drawer I could find in Pop's house for various keys and I tried them all. And then when keys didn't work, I went to knives and scissors and screwdrivers, flathead and Phillip, eventually went to hammer, could not open the box. And for the mind of a young boy, you often thought, well, what's in the box? Is there some kind of great secret or a great treasure? Is there money? I ask you this morning, is there ever something in your life that you struggled to open. What about the mystery of life? The mystery of life is oftentimes one thing that we all universally struggle to unlock. And that mystery of life is shared here with the author of Ecclesiastes. He writes as a man with a box that he needs to open, yet someone has hidden the key. Life is, in a sense, a mystery. I wanna kinda of tease that out for you a bit. Life is a mystery, it's strange. I mean, think about it for a second. Have you ever thought that it's really weird that when you're young, the only thing that you can kind of afford to eat is Hamburger Helper, Elio's Pizza, and mac and cheese? And then when you get older and you get enough money, you can afford to buy better food on more of a regular basis, but then your teeth can't chew it and your stomach tent can't digest it, and your heart doctor says you can't handle it. Isn't that strange? Have you ever found it to be really weird and odd that some of your friends who play loose with money always seem to have a lot of money? 
and yet your friends who play by all the rules never seem to have enough. Isn't it odd and strange in this thing that we call life how sometimes death will come to a young person who's full of life and bright and beautiful and brilliant? And yet, as many of us have observed, we have friends that are older, and it's as if death has forgotten where they live. I used to visit a woman, and for years, not just one or two visits, but for years, she would say to me, why doesn't Jesus just take me home? And oftentimes, I would pray, and I would ask the Lord, why don't you take her home? Strange, this thing we call life. It's odd. And yet, why do I see so many men and women working so hard to build a business only to retire and pass away months after they retire? It's as if they bake a cake, take it out of the oven, put it on top of the stove, and they never get to taste it. That's odd. That's strange. Who here can comprehend evil? Who can understand evil? nature. You see, life is a mystery. No matter how you look at it, there are mysterious things that are part of the way that we live. It's kind of like as a child trying to open up a box in your grandfather's attic. If only we knew the one who had the key. If only we knew the one that knew all the answers to all of our questions. See, this is where Ecclesiastes opens up. The author is reflecting the same sentiment that you and I share about life. The author is looking at life and he's saying, this is a mystery, this is strange, this is yet very difficult to understand. Let me be honest with you, in order to better comprehend where this author of this book of Ecclesiastes is coming from, I want us to pause for a second and look at three aspects of this book. First, the person who wrote it. Secondly, his problem. And then third, we're gonna look at his perspective, the angle in which he wrote this book we call Ecclesiastes. Now first, who is the person? Who wrote it? If you look at verse one of chapter one, it tells us that these are the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in or over Israel. Now, interestingly enough, if you're using an ESV, a King James, or an NASB this morning, it's not teacher, it's preacher. And the reality is, is they're kind of interchangeable. It's a teacher-preacher. That's how the author introduces himself, that he's a teacher or preacher. But then he adds one more caveat to really explain himself. He says, listen, I'm the son of David. I'm the king over Jerusalem. This can be none other than the 10th century king we call and know as Solomon. Solomon was, in a sense, calling himself a teacher and preacher, but we know that he was far more than just a mere preacher, was he not? He was king over Israel. He was, in a sense, very wealthy. He was very wise. He built loads of things, including the temple, and he got pretty much whatever he wanted. And as we read through Ecclesiastes, that's exactly what you're gonna see him talk about, all this stuff that he had. But when he opens up his speech, he calls himself a preacher. Now, I think that's strange, because how many kings and queens do you know that will take off their royal robe, step down off their throne, and then choose to stand behind a mere pulpit? Not many. Most make their speeches from their thrones, wearing their crowns. Here, we find that Solomon is no longer the young and proud and vibrant man that he once used to be. Now, he has journeyed through this thing we call life, and now he's older. And in a sense, 
He has been a preacher, he has been a teacher, he has been one who has been searching for answers to questions that you and I have, and now he's ready to talk. And he doesn't see himself so much as a king anymore, but as a commoner, saying, let me share with you what my search has discovered. So he speaks as someone who's discovered, and he assembles us, his audience, to speak to. And yet Solomon has a problem. His problem. What is his problem? His problem is the same problem that you and I have, that life is mysterious, that sometimes life, if we were all to be very honest, seems meaningless. That's what he says in verse two, is it not? When he writes and he says four times the word meaningless, just to prove his point. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Actually, the word is used 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can circle them as you read through it. Meaningless. This is the word he uses to describe life. Meaningless is this Hebrew word that describes how quickly life vanishes. This is where the Moody Bible Commentary came into help for me because it says that the word originally meant in the Hebrew that life is like a vapor. Life is like a breath. And many of your Bibles, the word is actually vanity. It's actually fleeting. It's not the word meaningless. But they all kind of seem to make the same point. That life at times doesn't seem to make sense. And things in life seem to be quickly going by. Like for instance, our beauty, which in Proverbs 31.30 uses the same word that Solomon uses here in verse two, when it says that, listen, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord, now she shall be praised. What's the point there? The point is that beauty is one of those things that is quickly going away, like a vapor, like a breath. Solomon is looking at life and he's saying, life in a sense is quickly vanishing. It's vanishing, vanishing this thing we call life. Everything is vanishing. Now, Solomon is not saying that life is not worth living. By using the word meaningless, he's not saying life is not worth living. Matter of fact, he's saying something completely different. And Haddon Robinson says this, when Solomon says life is meaningless, he does not mean it's not worth living. He suggests that try as we will, you and I can never figure it out. The preacher is looking for simply the key to unlocking life's mystery. He discovers that God is the keeper of that key and he never gives it to men and women. Try as we will, we will never figure it out. Is that not our struggle? Has that not been my struggle in my life? I sense that God holds the key and I hold all the questions. Is that not your life? You have questions and he holds the key, and yet he doesn't interact all too often with our questions. That's how many of us feel. And so Solomon writes from a certain perspective. At the beginning of his journey, at the beginning of this letter, this speech we call Ecclesiastes, he writes from a perspective that is interesting. His worldview, his sight line, is that we should look at life from under the sun. And that's how he writes. From the very onset, he looks at life under the sun. He begins his journey from man's point of view. That's what he means by that phrase, under the sun. It's man's point of view. It's man's perspective. It's a 
humanistic perspective. It's a human perspective. It's a secular perspective. It is what we call today the theory and the philosophy known as humanism. It's how he looks at life, life under the sun, which is why he writes in verse three, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? 29 times, actually, he uses that phrase in this book. Solomon looked at what life was like living from a humanistic point of view. His sight that he sees things is from humanism. And yet, as you look at verses four through 11, you see this humanistic perspective played out. Now, what is humanism? It's when you and I choose to live life without God. And so Solomon says, let's see how we can see life without God. So verses four through 11 is him looking at life and saying, I don't really see God involved. Look at verse four. Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. Solomon knows that people live and people die. He has no reason why. He says, I don't quite see God involved here. People are born and people die. I used a deep and profound search engine this past week known as Google. <laughs> and it, Google told me that on average, every day, 183,000 people die. And Google told me that on average, 350,000 people are born. That's what Google told me. And Solomon is not wrong when he says generations come and generations go. That's the perspective from a human mindset. He's saying, I don't see God involved here at all. I just see things happening. And so he looks at humanity and he's not quite sure he sees God. And then he looks and turns to nature in verse five. He says, the sun rises, the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. You see, sun rises and sun sets, in a sense, are predictable. And Solomon is saying that. Matter of fact, I turned to my good friend Google, and Google told me, you didn't see it because it was raining, that at 6.42 a.m. this morning, the sun rose. And Google promises me that at 7.20 p.m., the sun will set today. And for Solomon, he has observed the sunrise and the sunset, and he says, I don't see the hand of God in that. I just see the earth doing and the sun doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Where is God? He's not finished. He says, I've turned to the winds and the rivers and the rains and the oceans. Verse six and seven, the wind blows to the south. It turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the same sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Solomon, again, is not wrong. He's observing that life is a sense vanishing away, like the rivers and the waters and the seas, they vanish away and nobody knows where they go. Certainly, that is how we could look at life, that it's vanishing, that it's disappearing, and no one knows from whence it came. So he turns to science, he turns to history, verses nine through 11. He says, let's see if we can discover that God has his fingerprints in science or his fingerprints in history, verse nine. What has been will be again. What has been done has been done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I've observed and I've seen and I'm not seeing God. Is there anyone or anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It, has, it, is, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. In a sense, Psalm is saying you can't bring anything new to the table because if you do, it was already done. 
So then he turns to history. And he says something about history where he says in verse 11, no one remembers the former generation and even those yet to come will not be remembered. In a sense, he's saying, look, it's all going away. It's all vanishing. You all talk about Queen Elizabeth today, but tomorrow someone won't even know she existed. So what's the point? What the point is, is that Solomon is observing what many of you and I have observed, that at times life can feel like it's fleeting, like it's vanishing, like it's a vapor, like it's a breath that no longer can be grasped or held on, and we can't figure it out. And so Solomon comes to three possible conclusions. As he's writing in this speech, as he's giving his speech to his audience, he simply comes to three basic conclusions. These conclusions were picked up by many scholars, including Robinson and several others, And they simply say this, Robertson concludes and Ecclesiastes affirms that we can just simply live it up. That's what we could do with life. If life is fleeting and life is vanishing and life is like our breath and like our vapor, then we can just simply live it up. That we can just go on and be merry, that we can eat, we can drink, and we can be merry. Actually, four times in this book, known as Ecclesiastes, Solomon flirts with that idea. He suggests that, listen, if God really isn't interacting with us, if God really isn't here living in our midst, that in a sense, we can just live up life, enjoy life, pursue happiness in whatever cost it may come to us. And yet, as many have tried this path, this way of thinking, Oftentimes they come back because their bodies have worn out, their money has dried up, and they found the pursuit of happiness to be extremely frustrating. It's interesting, the Declaration of Independence says we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration does not guarantee it, though. It doesn't guarantee your happiness. And yet many of us run after it, we chase it. I want to ask the ladies this morning a question. Now, ladies, do not raise your hand because the guy next to you might feel a little bad about this question. But I am curious. How many of you women want a man who has these qualities? He owns his own home. Some of you are already tempted to raise your hand up, but listen, keep it down. (laughs) Has two cars, a great job, a brilliant mind, a caring heart. He cooks, he cleans, he coaches Little League and has animals. Now, I know some of you are going, I'm putting two hands. Two hands. Calm down. Years ago, years ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who fit this description. That's how I got it. He he had proposed to his fiancee several months prior, and when I got the call, I immediately went over to his house, and with tears down his face, He was holding the engagement ring. And I said, what happened? And he said, she said she wanted to be 23 again. She said she wanted to go live and be free again. That she didn't want any of this. That I worked so hard for. You know, it's interesting when people come to know Jesus Christ and to discover that Jesus is good, and that he is safe, and that he is loving, that there are some among us who reject that and say that's not possible, and we push against it. 
in a sense, when you find someone who represents the things that you've longed for, we can't believe it's true. And so we go back to living it up as if that is not a reality. It's sad. Solomon flirts with that conclusion to live it up, and yet Solomon comes to the conclusion that that's not a good way to live. So then he proposes another solution that we should essentially then give up. We've all felt like that. If we can't understand and comprehend the mysteries of life, then why don't we just give up on God and give up on life? In a sense, this is what we call humanism today. 1933, the Humanist Manifesto was written, and this is what is portrayed out, that we would live life without God. Let's just give up on God. Let's see if we as human beings can do this on our own, and we don't really need God. And so the manifesto of most humanists are this, that there's no such thing as a creator God. Why would we need a creator God? We can create things on our own. And yet as Christians, we look at the world and we say, how could you ignore that there's not a creator? Can't you just walk out and you see it and you sense it? And matter of fact, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter one, is that not what Solomon is arguing for even in the midst of seeing life under the sun? Doesn't he observe that there is a creator? I mean, think about it for a second. If there wasn't a creator, then how do we have such orderly things in our world? It's a good thing that sun rises and sets every day at the same time. It's a good thing that the earth floats around and that the entire earth gets sunlight. If it didn't, we'd be in some trouble, wouldn't we? It's a good thing that the winds and the rains work together, that the wind carries the clouds and dumps them on land and, the, and then the, the clouds open up and we receive rain. We call that the hydrological cycle, by the way. But if it didn't happen, I mean, God forbid, we would want oxygen and water, wouldn't we? But some people say, no, there's no such thing as a creator. And Christians say there has to be. Look at the order of things. Look at how things are predictable. It's because there is an orderly God working behind them. See, we can't deny that there's a creator. And yet humanists would also say there's no such thing as eternal life. That was all something that was made up in your Sunday school class, something that was made up in your religious groups. There's no such thing as eternal life. And yet as the Christian, we would say, there certainly is eternal life. There's eternal life. And think about it for this, this moment. Like who taught you, and in a sense, in your mind, even if you don't believe in Jesus or you believe in heaven, in some sense, you believe that there's something more to this life, that when the, the lights go out, that this can't possibly be the end. You're thinking there's gotta be something else. And in a sense, that would be God putting eternity on your hearts. C.S. Lewis, the great scholar and thinker, said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it must mean we were made for another world. The reality is, is if you're sitting here today and you're saying, look, this world doesn't make sense. This is a mad, mad world. And I can't understand how a good God would allow these things to happen. It's because this isn't your home. This isn't where you're supposed to be. It's why you feel, in a sense, this world doesn't make sense. Because it's not supposed to make sense. That's why we have heaven. That's why Jesus Christ came to offer you and I the forgiveness for our sins and eternal life. 
And in a sense, it wasn't a Sunday school teacher who taught you that there's eternal life. It was God who placed it in your heart long ago. But the humanists would say there's no such thing as eternal life, and I would say, well, then how did I get the idea of it? The humanist then would conclude, I just wanna do good. I wanna do good without God. I wanna do good without God's direction. And I would argue that we are incapable of doing good without the direction of God. Any idea that we have to love one another and be kind to one another and be patient with one another came from Jesus himself. It was displayed on a cross. You can live it up. You can give it up. Or we can do one more thing. We can just look up. You can look up and you can see that there is a good and gracious God. There is a good and gracious God and you can look up and you can see that life without God is meaningless. You see, that's the point of Ecclesiastes. The author, the preacher, the royal robe has come off. He stepped down from the throne. He stood in his pulpit and he declared, I've been on this journey and I've come to the conclusion that life without God is not worth living. I've come to the mind that, listen, I have pursued all these different avenues time and time again, come back to them, and then betrayed them. I've flirted with them, and I've concluded that life without God is vanishing. The brilliant scholar and philosopher Dallas Willard once wrote, because I make my living as a university professor and philosopher, I am frequently asked in so many words, why do you follow Jesus Christ? My answer is always the same. Who else did you have in mind? <laughs> Who else did you have in mind? Who else, Solomon, did you have in mind? As he penned these words in Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 12, after all of his pursuits, he says, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long life, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, hear this, who are reverent before him. As he concludes his speech in chapter 12, verse 13, he writes these words. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. You see, you don't live it up. You don't give it up. You simply look up and you see Jesus Christ. He is the one holding the key. We are the one with the questions, but those questions will find their answer when we walk through his door, through his gate. You know, the interesting and profound thing to me when I was a child trying to open up that box in my grandfather's attic, the way to open the box would have been simply to go and just ask my pop to open it. <laughs> that can't be the way, right? That can't be the simple answer. The truth of the matter is the way, the truth and the life is found in Jesus Christ. It's found in Jesus. It's found in him alone. We may not understand everything that this life has to offer, but we can come to understand and know and follow Jesus Christ. Elsa Einstein, the second wife of Albert Einstein, was asked once if she understood the theory of relativity. 
And her comment was simply, no, I don't understand the theory of relativity, but I understand Professor Einstein, and that's all I need. In a sense, Jesus Christ has given us himself. He has given us the idea that life is meaningless without him, that in Jesus Christ, you and I can have life, which is why Jesus would say in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. You see, Jesus came that we would have eternal life, that we would live life in him, not to live life in ourselves, not to give up on God, but to cling and hold on to Jesus Christ, for in Christ there is no other way, which is why the author of Hebrews says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus comes into your life after you receive his forgiveness for sins, and he enters into your life, and he's not gonna leave you, and he won't forsake you, and he'll carry you home. You see, the reality and the truth of the matter is that oftentimes we want to look up, but it's a lot easier to live it up than to give it up. But it takes faith and trust. Robinson says this, and in that faith, you can trust what you cannot trace. You can step where you cannot see, and you will undergo what you may never understand. Listen, we are going to jump into a book the next several weeks on Ecclesiastes. And I pray that this message would be an instrumental, foundational message for you. And my encouragement to you is this week, go back and reread Ecclesiastes from the perspective of not living it up, not giving it up, but looking up. And coming to the understanding that the best life you can live is to fear God and to keep his commands. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you are good and you are gracious and you are kind and you are gentle. You are the God of our dreams. And yet, Lord, we don't push you away, we embrace you. Even in the moments where life does not make sense, I pray, Father, that we would embrace you. I pray, Father, that we would cling to you. I ask, Father, that in the deepest, darkest moments where we have all these questions, that, Lord, when we see you, our questions would fall away and we would be satisfied with Jesus Christ. Help us to get there. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us today. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times, and our location, check out our website at gccws.net.